Welcome to Horsepower to Hyperloops, Kettering University's official podcast, where we serve up a smorgasbord of fascinating people, groundbreaking ideas, and noteworthy advancements in fields as diverse as mobility, healthcare, engineering, and technology. This is the story of Rice and Clapp, who back in the day created quite a flap. Their story involved an evening of crime, now just a footnote, lost in time. I was concerned it was just fake news. But history's just a box of clues, so I hit the files, shook out the lice, and found the truth about Clapp and Rice. Hi, this is Tim Noonan. So what's that all about? Well, it's long been part of GMI lore that in 1937, two students somehow broke into the Chevrolet plant number two during the famous UAW strike and got themselves in a world of trouble. For a long time, I couldn't find out any more about this story and began to wonder, did it happen? Who were these guys? How'd they do it and why? So I did a little digging. The story starts in the 1936-37 school year, when GMI was just beginning to shake off the challenges of the Great Depression, which had almost closed the school a few years before. By 1936, though, GMI had 51 full-time and 16 part-time teachers, providing one and a quarter million man-hours of instruction per year. That's apparently how they measured it in those days. General Motors had had its own troubles and had even cut wages in 1932. As with GMI, by 1936, things were better, although management was concerned by a fledgling union, the United Auto Workers, that was attempting to gain traction among the workers. On December 30, 1936, New Year's Eve, the union learned that GM was planning to move the dyes out of Fisher Body Plant No. 1. Seeing a chance to also push for higher wages, union members immediately moved to occupy the plant. This stopped production, and hence students at GMI, who had co-ops at the plant, immediately lost their jobs and their income. Now, most strikes at the time involved pickets outside the front door, which are designed to discourage co-workers from entering and continuing to work. The problem with this, from any striker's point of view, is that scabs or temporary workers are often hired to cross the picket lines, in which case work continues on as before, undermining the impact of the strike. But a sit-down strike inside the plant prevents the management strategy and entirely shuts down production. And that's what happened at GM in 1936 and 37. And as it turned out, The violent six-week 1936-37 sit-down strike at the Chevrolet plant number two became one of the most important labor events in American history. Now, as the strike wore on into the first week of January of 1937, large crowds began to gather on a daily basis outside the plant on Chevrolet, just down from GMI. Union agitators spoke, unruly workers cheered, and wary police ringed the perimeter. The situation was tense and getting tenser every day. The inmates had been running the asylum for 10 days when, on January 11th, GM management intervened and called in the police, who attempted to invade the plant. 
The workers responded by fire hosing and throwing car parts at the officers, many of them their friends from the neighborhoods of Flint. Meanwhile, the women's auxiliary broke windows so the workers inside could get fresh air and relief from the tear gas the police had lobbed in with canisters. The Battle of Bulls Run, as it came to be known, Bulls being a slang at the time for police, ended after six hours. Fourteen strikers had been injured by gunfire. Now, unbeknownst to anyone at the time, a GMI freshman and amateur photographer from Detroit, Warren Rice, had been regularly sneaking into the plant to take pictures of the strikers. On Monday night, January 18th, a week after the Battle of Bulls Run, with no resolution to the strike in sight and anger running high on all sides, Rice planned to make another visit to take more pictures to add to my collection, he said later. This time, though, he talked his classmate, Julius Clapp from Autram, Michigan, into joining him. There had only been an inch and a half of snow since the new year, so the ground was dry in Flint that night. The temperature that day had only reached 22 degrees, and by the time the boys began their nocturnal trek to Chevrolet Avenue, it was only in the high teens. Given the cold and the late hour, the streets were empty. The lights flickered from inside the building, and muffled voices from inside could be heard in the still night air. Looking furtively about the deserted area, Rice and Clamp hopped a fence, hustled across a small bit of ground, and scurried up a fire escape to the roof. There they proceeded to an entry down into the plant that Rice had found on an earlier excursion. Quietly, they slipped inside and began to make their way down the stairs, Warren Rice minding the camera around his neck so as not to let it swing into the steps or railing and make a clatter. Perhaps it was the tomb-like silence of the winter night, or perhaps they were careless in scouting the area, but the boys weren't as lucky as Rice had been on previous occasions. Ever since the battle with the police a week before, the strikers had maintained lookouts around the building, and a roof patrol of strikers had seen the two shadows slip across the roof and into the entrance to the plant. With a shout, they gave chase and pursued the boys down the inside steps, calling out for them to stop. Inside the plant, the chase continued. The shouting raised a ruckus, bringing other strikers into the pursuit. The young scofflaws, outnumbered behind enemy lines and with few places to hide, were roughly collared and soon surrounded by glaring workers. Frightened, the boys offered to leave, but the strikers were not in an accommodating mood. They didn't like Rice's camera, and they suspected the young men of being spies from GM management. Gunfire and injuries had already been part of this weeks-long debacle, and for a while the boys' fate was in great doubt. As the strikers debated what to do with the intruders, Rice desperately tried to explain he was just taking some pictures for himself, and Clapp argued that he had just come along for thrills. But the boys remained hostages until an informal committee decided their fate. Eventually, Rice and Clapp were able to convince the strikers that they did not work for GM management and that they had no ulterior motives. Somewhat reluctantly and disgustedly, the strikers handed them over to a UAW organizer, Robert C. Travis, who then questioned them himself a bit more formally. 
After Rice was forced to strip his film from his camera and turn over other negatives, Travis finally escorted the boys out of the plant and all the way through town to their boarding houses in Flint with warnings not to try the stunt again. The temperature by then was in the low teens, but the boys were shivering probably for more than the cold. That night, despite the late hour, GMI administration was duly informed about the trespassers. And the next morning, Tuesday the 19th, the Flint Journal ran a page two article entitled, Strikers Seize Youthful Pair. By the time Major Sobey called the student body together for an impromptu meeting late Tuesday morning, everyone had heard the scuttlebutt. This assembly is called, Sobey said from the stage, because of a regrettable incident which occurred last evening and which has been reported to the administration. Always one to give a student the benefit of a doubt, he went on to say, I am convinced it was an outgrowth of idle curiosity, but it was fraught with various possibilities of misrepresentation and resulting danger, not only to the individuals, but to the institution and to everyone here as members of the Institute family. I am sure that is now understood fully by the individuals involved and that it will not happen again. Then he added as if for emphasis, this is an educational and training institution and has no part in the industrial controversy. Ten days later, Sobe wrote of the ongoing situation just down the street, we are hoping the strike, which has been seriously threatening to affect your training and earning power, will quickly be settled. In fact, from my contacts, I have been noting a slowly rising tide of confidence in this regard. The major was right. Ten days later, on February 11th, or 1937, and an agreement, an agreement was made that recognized the UAW as the exclusive bargaining representative for GM's employees who were members of the union for the next six months. More importantly, this marked the real birth of the UAW, which quickly grew from 30,000 to 500,000 members and has been a force in American labor ever since. For students, the damage had already been done long before the strike ended. Alternative programs had had to be found for those working at plants affected by the strike. Julian, Julius Clapp left GMI after one year and, according to subsequent records, never returned to college. Warren Rice spent three years at GMI but left before graduating. Both served in World War II and raised families. Clapp returned to Otran, Michigan in the Upper Peninsula and, in 1972, was listed as the chairman of the Alger County Planning Commission. His career is unknown. Clapp died in Michigan in 2002. Rice worked at Fisher Body, Camp, Body and became a Buick powertrain engineer who helped develop the Dynaflow semi-automatic transmission. In the 1940s, Rice won a $5,000 cash prize offered by auto entrepreneur Preston Tucker for an automatic transmission that would be an improvement over Buick's Dynaflow and comparable in performance to the Hydromatic. Rice went on to work uh, on the Tucker 48 sedan and was later made an assistant vice president of the Tucker testing program in Indianapolis. He died in 1997. Butch and Sundance, they weren't quite but they still stole into the cold flint night and got caught in the striker's trap. And that's the legend of Rice and Clown. Thanks for listening. This is Tim Troop Noonan. Be safe.
Join us again to hear Kettering University's podcast, Horsepower to Hyperloops, available from wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks for listening.